Well, good morning. It's good to be here with all of you. Uh, That is Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, the beginning of our passage this morning as we continue to journey through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes in our series this fall uh, called Kingdom Living, uh, a poem. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, a poem, a poem of seasons and time, uh, a poem about the complexity of of life. It is raw, life is raw, life is beautiful. Life is celebratory, life is painful. The poem, the famous poem, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, um, accepts the good times of life, accepts the hard times in life, and all the in-between times in life. Weeping may be part of life, uh, but life is not all weeping. Uh, laughter, laughter and dance also has a place in our lives. Silence might, might be part of life, but life is not all silence. Speaking and engaging also has a place. And famous poem, you've probably heard this, read perhaps at a, at a funeral before. Um, maybe you've read it before. Uh, you've heard it before. Uh, I personally love the transparency of the poem. I love the vulnerability of the poem because I personally, I don't like spin. I don't like phony. I don't like inauthenticity. And so the rawness of the poem kind of draws me in. Um, Life is full of beauty and life is full of sorrow. And we really, when we really step back, look at it, hold the weight of the poem Uh, We really don't have any control over any of the things, do we? We really don't have any control. At the very beginning of the poem, uh, there is a time, there is a time in life for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, but we are not arranging it. We are not arranging it and we are not able to keep it all on our calendars. I'll take a year, I'll take a year of dancing and planting, please. But hold the uprooting and the mourning. And then for the next five years, I'll build a successful life. Thank you very much. We really have no control. We simply live in the reality of the poem. Would you agree? This is the life that we have together. And I believe that the poem is meant to help us understand the reality of things and the finality of things under the sun in which we live. And ultimately, ultimately, to lead us in the next verses, verses nine to 21, ultimately to lead us in the next verses to find ultimately our hope and our peace and our true meaning in God alone. Uh, this was um, a, a word from a commentator that I read this week on, can you help me, Sarah? Okay. These words on one through eight. It is a mistake. This is context. Context is king when we read scripture. So we read passages 
within the passages that are before them and behind them. And so it would be a mistake for us to extract this poem, these verses from the whole chapter as it is often done, and think that they have their real meaning displayed without looking at how the preacher follows the poem. Really, this poem is right in the middle of the first two chapters. So we have chapter one, chapter two, where we've been the last two weeks. And then the prose that's gonna happen in verses nine to 21. And this poem connects chapter one and two with what follows. And so as we look at chapter three, I would organize it this way. I have this on. Sarah, whenever you see me click this, just like, you got me? So when I do this, you're, yeah, we're, we're together on this, okay. So the poem is Ecclesiastes three, one through eight. And the prose is the following verses, nine and following. The poem, this is interesting, 14 pairs of activities, of reality under the sun, 28 things total, multiples of seven, multiples of seven. The number that symbolizes totality in the scripture, throughout the scripture. That's the poem. The prose is this, the poem sets up the problem that the prose following verses will seek to resolve. So if we just hold the poem, take it out of the context of everything, we're just gonna be facing the reality of the problem. And the poem sets up the problem so that the prose that follows by the preacher and the teacher can help us truly find our meaning and hope in all the reality and all the totality of the reality of our life here under the sun. The poem sets up the problem and the prose will seek to resolve it. The poem says we are bound by our time here and we are not in control of it. And the prose says, but God, but God is. And God endures forever. So we're gonna look at this chapter uh, 9 to 17. I'm going to kind of read some verses and we're going to work through this together. Uh, So you've heard the poem. I'm not going to read that again. We're going to now move to the prose that follows the poem. I'm going to start with reading 9 to 14 in your Bibles. If you have them open, uh, read along with me. Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil, from his work? I have seen the burden that God has laid on men. The poem, I've seen the burden, the reality that God has laid on men. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of mankind Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We are finite. God is infinite. Verse 12, I know, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. Verse 14, I know, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it 
Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that man, mankind, people, men, women, everyone, God does it so that mankind will revere him. Verse 15, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. Let's pause there for just a moment. Uh, Verse 9 and 10 are some real honest wrestling. 9 and 10. I've given you the poem. I've given you the the reality, the finality, the totality. We're not under control. We're bound by time. What really is the point? Verses 9 and 10. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, says the preacher, uh, life can really feel like a burden sometimes. Anybody feel that with the preacher? If I'm really honest with you, life really does feel like a burden sometimes. And for some, more than others, depends on the season. Depends on the season, right? Sometimes we're in a season of dancing and sometimes we're in a season of mourning. But when we put it all together, it really can feel like a burden, sure doesn't feel good all the time. God is good all the time, I believe that. But life sure doesn't feel good all the time. Would you guys agree with that? Which reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter eight, where he says, creation, the very creation itself, because of the fall of mankind, was, it was, and it is subjected to frustration. We are going to feel frustrated. Life is going to feel like a burden in the seasons and the times as we live our lives. Also, Romans 8, creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth in the present time. And I know this to be true that some of you in this room right now, because of what's happening in your life and in your family and in your relationships, in this time, there is a, there's a groaning There's a groaning in your soul in this season, in this time. Some of you are frustrated. It's real and it's raw. Ecclesiastes 3.11 is the promise the preacher gets. He's holding the burden. He's holding the tension. 9 and 10. And verse 11 is the promise that brings hope into the tension and the ache and the tears and the anger, and all the things. God has made everything. God has made everything, everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity into our hearts. Reminder of chapter one, Hybel. Everything is a breath. So life is short. And so chapter one teaching us to like embrace the moments, live into the moments, life is short, and also have eternity in our mindset as we live into the moments of the lives that God has given to us. I think verse 11 is a really good uh, just summary of all of chapter one. This is the hope, this is the peace, this is where we find comfort in the seasons of when things are tearing and when things are, when we're weeping and when we're confused and all, all those things. Um, I think verse 11 says to you, because God is eternal and because God has set eternity literally into your own heart, 
No matter if it's the good times or the hard times or the in-between times, because we're made in the image of God, because we have the Holy Spirit in us, because God has set eternity into our own, own, own hearts, we can say, I have hope. No matter what. Isaiah 61 says these words, there is, there is beauty, there's beauty for ashes. There is strength for fear. There is gladness for mourning. There is hope for despair. Both and, both and. Romans 8, 28. This, the spirit, or 826, the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us in our lives, in the seasons, with groans that words cannot even express. Like the Holy Spirit in us. God has set eternity into our hearts. He's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is interceding on behalf of the saints of God with groanings that are not even expressible. For us, all we have is the groaning and the Holy Spirit literally intercedes for us before the Father, both and. Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good. I always say this when I quote Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 doesn't say that all things are good, right? It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. It says that God works all things together for good, ultimately for good for those who Love God and are called according to his purpose, both, both and. I look at Ecclesiastes chapter three, Isaiah 61, Romans chapter eight. These are some, for me, in my life, in my journey, in my story, these are some of the most hope-filled verses that I find so much peace, peace from. And also, there is so much mystery in the promises, but that doesn't negate the promises. Like I hold the hope of those promises. I also don't understand it all. I don't, I don't have an, an infinite reality of all of it, but I'm holding the promise of it. And also I'm still needing comfort in the midst of it. But it doesn't negate the promise. Uh, right after the promise that God makes to us in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that he makes everything beautiful in its proper time and has set eternity into our hearts, he makes this statement at the end of verse 11, and we can't fathom what God has done from the beginning to end, which means it requires us to believe and have faith and trust and the word of God and the promises of God, and we encourage each other in these realities all the more as we see the day approaching. Part of, I believe, part of being wise, having wisdom in all the seasons and all the times and all the realities of our lives under the sun, everything that we're experiencing in the poem, part of being wise in our lives under the sun is learning to accept that we aren't in control, and two, that we have sometimes very limited access to everything that's happening. Again, from uh, some things that I shared last week, uh, we must accept our place in the story. 
God is the creator. We are the created ones. We live in time. We live in time space. We are limited by the time that God has created as the created ones. We live in time, but God is spirit. First John 4, God is spirit, and God is outside of time. So we live in time. God is outside of time. We are certainly not made to understand the vast, sovereign realities of the creator and all that's happening. We are made to trust God and to follow God in the seasons and the times and to believe that everything is beautiful in its time and that God has set eternity into our hearts. Therefore, we will have hope. So I don't know it all, and you don't know it all, and we don't know it all, and the preacher, he doesn't know it all, but he says, but I I do know a couple things in the midst of holding the tension, the both and the end, and he says in verse 14, I know that everything that God does, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it. Let's work that theology into some maybe more practical things for us today. So everything that God does will endure forever. Another way of saying that is God's actions are permanent. God's actions are permanent. It shall be forever. Another way of thinking about this is God's actions are effective and complete. Nothing can be added to it. Thirdly, God's actions are totally secure. Nothing can be taken from it. This this is the preacher. Verse 14, this is the preacher in Ecclesiastes experiencing measure of peace that passes understanding. In the mystery of all of his under the sun thinking. In the reality of, I'm thinking about life. I'm coming out of this poem and I'm thinking, this is a burden. This is a true burden. But also in the midst of this is peace in the mystery because of God. Because God is eternal and he has set eternity into our hearts. And because God's promise is, I will make everything beautiful in its time because of God, it is good for us to be joyful and hopeful in the seasons. Because of God, it is good for us to eat and to drink, to live into the moments. Heibel, everything is a breath. It is good for us to live into the moments to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our work because these are God's gifts to mankind. So enjoy, enjoy his gifts. Receive the gift of God. Receive literally the breath that you're breathing in this moment and the reality that your heart is beating. This is a gift from God. And find hope that God is eternal and he has set his eternity into our own hearts. I would say um, it this way. We are made to find rest in the sovereignty of God. We are made to find rest in the old hymn that we just sang. Great is his faithfulness to us. God has done, he has done this. He has done this so that mankind will 
revere, revere him. Be in awe, be in awe of him to find rest in the sovereignty of God. Juliana of Norwich, perhaps you've heard of her. She lived in the late 1300s, died circa 1416. She is thought to have been the first woman to write a book in the English language which has still survived. Pretty important, pretty important. She wrote, probably the book that she's most well known for is a book called Revelations of Divine Love, which is widely acknowledged of one of the great classics in like spiritual life. And this is a quote from that book And she says, all all will be made well. All manner of things shall be well. Do you believe her? Do you believe her this morning? Do you believe in her theology? Does her theology and her word to you land and give you strength today. I think Juliana of Norwich deeply believed in the truths of Isaiah 61. There is hope for despair. There is gladness for mourning. I believe that she believed deeply in the word of God in Romans 8 that God somehow, some way, I don't pretend to understand how or when or all those things, but I believe in the promise of God that God is going to make all the things and all the seasons and all the stories and all the pain and all the joy and all the things. He is going to make it for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I believe that she believed in the promise of Ecclesiastes 3. She found her rest and hope in God's sovereignty to you. I, I do, I do, I promise I do. I, I, and my testimony to you is I do, but I'm gonna tell you this, if I'm honest, if I'm honest with you, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be honest with you. The sovereignty of God is both a wonderful comfort for us and it's challenging. It's also challenging. So what I wanna do is move this a little bit from theology to like our lives, our actual lives that we're living Comfort, comfort in the sovereignty of God. In Jesus' name, there is peace that passes understanding and the God of peace is with you, Philippians 4. Amen? That is true, I believe that. The challenge, we don't get all the answers we want when we want them and how we want them. The comfort of the sovereignty of God, verse 15, God seeks after what has been driven away. God seeks after the lost and the hurting. And he redeems our stories and restores our stories. Challenge, wickedness, evil is still here. And we will experience it. The comfort of God's sovereignty, there will be a time of judgment and justice 
will prevail at the second coming of Jesus. The challenge, what about all the injustices here and now under the sun, which is where the teacher goes in the next two verses. Read with me verses 16 and 17. Speaking about the here and now, the teacher says this, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. Verse 17, and I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. So, verse 16, the teacher looks at the here and now world. Apart from considering eternity, he saw that there was great evil, there's great injustice. And instead of fair judgment in the here and now, he only sees wickedness. And instead of righteousness, he finds iniquity. And that is a burden. That is a burden. This is a significant problem under the sun, wouldn't you agree? And if mankind, if mankind does not have to reckon with eternity, if this, if this is all that there is, then many of the wicked and evil people win and many good and righteous people suffer and lose. Verse 17, but I said in my heart, God will bring judgment to both the wicked and to the righteous. Every single person that has been created in the very image of God will stand before the judgment seat of Christ at his second coming. And so the preacher says, perhaps hoped that he knew that God would ultimately judge the righteous and the wicked. There will be a time of reckoning. We just don't know that time yet. And so we live in the tension of the promise and the tension of what's happening in our lives in the here and now world. And so sovereignty is a soft good, right, helpful, strengthening place for us to land in our lives under the sun. There's comfort there and there's a challenge there, but there is rest and there's hope there. Knowing, believing, understanding that God is outside of time and sees it all and knows it all is comforting. The theological word to speak about God's sovereignty or sovereignty here is God is omniscient. God is outside of time. He is all knowing. He's all seeing. God is omniscient. So knowing that God is outside of time and sees it all is it's restful. It's a restful place. It's a hopeful place. And knowing that God, verse 17, will in the end bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked helps us understand this reality of God's attributes. God is also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. 
And so we hold the omniscience of God theologically and we hold the omnipotence of God theologically as we walk through the reality of our lives under the sun, holding the tension of both and. I know that these two things, God's omniscience and God's omnipotence, help me in my life in a real, real practical way. My, my rest my rest, my rest in God's sovereignty releases me from trying to be in control of everything, to know everything and do everything and save everything and everyone, which I'm prone to think about and prone to even act on. God's sovereignty releases me from trying to be control of everything that happens to me and around me. I think if, if I'm honest, perhaps if you're honest, we might all agree with this for your consideration. I'm not putting this on you. I'm just inviting you to consider this, uh, but I'll say this is true for me. We struggle, I struggle to adjust my expectations about my life. I struggle to adjust my expectations about my life, about how it should go, and what it should be. And I contend to believe wrongly that I am in way more control of things than I actually am. I used to say this when my daughter Ellie was like four. She's 19 now, a sophomore in college. And I can remember saying this, like, I can't even control a four-year-old. Trust me, I could not. And on a really, really good day, I can control myself. If I'm like walking in the spirit, full of the spirit, I can have the fruit of self-control in my own life on a good day. Many of our frustrations in life rise from our demand for our expectations and our sense of false control. And Ecclesiastes is seeking to help you be released from a false sense of control and to trust in God as we hold the tension of our lives and that God has set eternity into our hearts. One of the commentaries that I'm reading is called Recovering Eden. And he says, time, time in God's hands. So if you want to put like time, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, the poem, time, the poem in God's hands. Graciously, if we allow the poem to move us, the, the poetry to the prose, the poem helps us understand that we need God's help to ultimately find our true meaning and purpose in God, apprentices us, to have hope and peace and a foundation that God is faithful even when we're experiencing the hard realities of the poem. Time in God's hand graciously apprentices us. The message here, the message here is not there are good times and there are bad times and there are in-between times, so just learn to roll with it. Just roll with it. That's not the message. It's not the message. The message here is in the midst of all of the complexities 
of life of which we are not in control, we know the one who is omniscient and omnipotent and his name is Jesus. And he, he himself is our hope and peace. I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. And life's complexity certainly is confusing for me and hard for me. But I do know this, and I do believe this. I know that everything God does will endure forever. I know that God makes everything beautiful in its proper time. I know that God has set eternity. I know that God has set eternity into our hearts. And therefore, we are never without hope. Time in God's hands graciously apprentices us. And all and all will be made well. All manner of things shall be made well. I look at this and I go, this, this reality, this message is a yearning for Jesus. It's an ache and a yearning for restoration and redemption and hope and peace in the midst of the complexity of life. Who has come in redemption and who is coming again in full restoration to make all things, to make all things new. A yearning for Jesus in the here and now. I got to go uh, last night to the student ministry retreat. Do we have those pictures? Do we get? Yeah. So I got to go. The reason why I went is because Michaela, uh, she plays on a soccer team. She has a soccer game this morning at 10. She's not going to be at church. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. So I went to pick her up last night. Brought her home. Get her to sleep in her own bed. She's off to soccer this morning. So I got to go and be there. And I got to call a square dance, which was super fun, at the end of the night. I can call a hoedown square dance. If you didn't know, I can do that. I can do that. Maybe we'll do that at the October party. Maybe we'll do that. But before the hoedown, I got to just be up in the balcony and watch these young people, like, like our students, yearn, yearn for the presence of God. It's my friend Cam in the cowboy hat and Megan leading worship. The top, I love students. They're just, they're so free. See them linked up together. They can't help it. They just link together. I love teenagers. Kenny, our student ministry director in the pink hat because he just wears pink hats and Michigan attire. That's that's, that's who he is. And he is inviting them at the end of this time together My friend Lucas in the back got to go up there on Friday night and Saturday morning and speak to them about John 13. A new commandment I give to you. Like the world's gonna know that you're my disciple if you love one another the way I have loved you. And so just, it's a powerful, powerful weekend. So Kenny's talking to them about John 13 where Lucas had been teaching from. And in that passage is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
And if you remember the story, Peter was having none of it, was having none of it. And Jesus was like, if you don't allow me to do this, you have no part. Like, humble yourself. Humble yourself. And so all the leaders went into the dining hall there. And you can't really see it, but the U-shape around the room were all these basins of water. There's worship music playing. And the leaders were just available to wash the feet of these teenagers. And... It was, a, it was a real, it was a real receiving from Jesus. I was texting our staff in the moment and I said, pray, God is moving powerfully here right, right now amongst this group of 50 teenagers. Receiving his grace, his joy, his hope. It was so beautiful. I was overcome. And what ended up happening was after all the teenagers that, and Kenny said, like, this is just an invitation to you. You don't have to do this. We're not forcing this on you. Like, Jesus didn't force it on Peter. Peter needed to step into his own humility, receive that ministry. What ended up happening was students then started washing the feet of their leaders. He's like middle school kids washing the feet of their leaders. This powerful. And I just was in the back praying and thinking, Lord, they, they, they are going to need this story, this experience of your presence. They're going to need this reminder. Make this an Ebenezer for them in the future. Because I don't know what their future is going to be, but I know that there's going to be mourning and weeping and sorrow there, and also laughing and dancing there. But they're going to need this reminder in their future seasons. They're going to need this when they face uprooting, when they face tearing down, when they face their grief. And so I just kept praying for them, Lord, show your face to the young people. Give them your presence. Prepare them so that when they suffer, they will stand in your hope. It's really, really beautiful. You are going to need it as well. You you need the presence of God, real, tangible encounters and experiences with the presence of God that you know, that you know, that you know that God is with me and he will never leave me or forsake me so that whether I'm dancing or whether I'm, I'm mourning, I will hold hope and peace in that ground. We all need it, amen? We all need it. Job, Job suffered Worship team, you can come back up. Would you stand with me? Job suffered. Job, Job suffered so bad. Oh my goodness. He suffered so bad. 
but he would not let, against all hope, he held hope. He believed that God makes everything beautiful in his time and that God has set eternity into our hearts. He believed that God's work endures forever. So I want us to uh, read this together. And we're gonna sing a couple songs. Uh, There's communion available for you in the pews. If you want to receive communion this morning, as a response, uh, we want to just enter into the presence of God together in these last moments in our gathering. Worship, prayer, communion, fellowship. To lean in and to yearn for God to show his face to us. As you receive the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you. As you, as you receive it to taste, remember, see, experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, to be rooted and grounded in his love, to have hope against all hope in your own life, to sing into the darkness if you're in the valley of the shadow, to dance if you're in a season of joy, that we would taste and experience and encounter the love of God for us. Because we're going to need this. You're going to need this, church. We don't know what tomorrow is. And sometimes we don't know what the long turn is. And I promise you there's joy around the turns, but there's also sorrow. We're going to need this moment, this moment of experiencing the presence of God with God's people, singing worship songs to Jesus, receiving his communion, to enter into a space to know that God is with me. He'll never forsake me. Therefore, I have hope. Let's read these words together. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Amen.